0: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes.
1: Genes are the instructions that tell our cells what to do, but how do different types of cells know which genes to switch on or off at the right time? The solution lies in epigenetics, the molecular bells and whistles that act on top of our DNA to control gene activity.
2: In humans, estimates vary, but certainly thousands and thousands of genes are regulated by small RNAs. It could be that every gene is regulated by a small RNA.
1: Plus, a new gene involved in severe obesity and a mythical gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2015 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I'm reporting back from a fascinating meeting I went to up in Edinburgh, a Wellcome Trust Waddington symposium entitled Epigenetics in Dialogue with the Genome. We're starting to hear the word epigenetics used more and more frequently, but what does it mean and what's it all about? A lot of the talks at the conference were centred on so-called epigenetic modifications of DNA, chemical tags that are put directly onto DNA, or onto the spool-like histone proteins that package it up, which are associated with changes in gene activity, such as when genes are switched on or off. To find out more about these mysterious marks and how they work, I spoke to one of the organisers of the meeting, Robin Allshire, from the University
3: of Edinburgh. Our DNA is not just a naked string. The best analogy I can come up with is you wrap it twice around a spool, there's a gap, it gets wrapped around it again, wrapped around it again, a bit like beads on a string. You can have these chemical adaptations that cause it to close up or to open up. The debate is whether those, those adaptations, these additions of chemical groups onto the spools themselves are instructive. In other words, do they force the DNA to shut down, or are they just weak signals of some sort that are helping uh, repression, but are not the main driving force? So, not, so in my point of view, the um, what we really want to find out is whether these adaptations or marks, if you want to call them, on the spools actually um, can carry information through cell division.
1: So let's go into a little bit more detail then. So we've got the DNA, it's this long string of of letters, of bases. Mm -hmm. It's wrapped around these spools. Tell me a bit more about them and the kind of marks that we can find on them.
3: So these spools are made up of proteins. There's eight individual uh, proteins that makes up a spool, two of each type, and they are called histones. And those histones uh, form the a blob basically that the DNA wraps around. But they have these extensions that hang outside.
1: You <laughs> you waving your hands around like kind of octopus tentacles.
3: <laughs> That's what they're like. That's the way I imagined them in my head. So you can have adaptations that clamp those tentacles down onto the. DNA, they maybe hug neighbouring spools, so they're more tightly blocked, and you can have a, a, adaptations that cause them to wave out and around crazy, so that it says, come and get me and turn me on.
1: So everything kind of loosens up and yeah. that the, the gene can be read.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: So it's all about kind of combinations of these yeah. marks, the tails, the, how open and closed it is, and then all these molecules that are recognising yeah. them and, and locking them down. So, it all seems so for complicated. example, there's
3: one, there's one that we, in gen- so you can generalise to some extent with respect to one of the type of chemical marks which is acetylation. And in general acetylation is promotes gene expression. I like to think of it as that it oils these tentacles and loosens them off, but again it brings in it can bring in various machinery that opens up then the spools, allowing the, the DNA to be read.
1: What do we know about how these marks can be propagated as cells divide or even as organisms divide and and reproduce? Because it seems to be quite a a controversial area. What what do we know and what do we not yet know?
3: These uh, chemical marks on the histones are very frequently referred to as epigenetic modifications. The word epigenetic means many different things to different people. Uh, a strict definition is the propagation of a state without the presence of the inducer that enabled that state, so the question becomes whether these are truly these marks can actually be copied during the process of cell division, so that both daughter cells have an exact copy of the marks
1: so if a skin cell divides, it makes two cells that know that they 're meant to be skin cells
3: yeah exactly so so the question is can the marks actually be recognized and then you have the, so as the cell goes through division, you have to deposit or assemble, make new spools on the uh, new DNA. And can you copy the marks from the pre-existing um, spools that were there so that they take on the same state?
1: And can you? Well... <laughs> this is the big
4: question, So isn't this it?
3: is the big question. So recently what we've been able to do in a model organism, fish and yeast, we have tested this uh, in a very simple way where we artificially bring the um, enzyme, so that's the protein with an activity that puts a, a certain chemical mark, which is called lysine 9 methylation, on a, so that's on a specific part of one of the histones in the spool. What we were doing is we artificially bring it somewhere and then we're able to get rid of it. And when we get rid of it, the question is, can it be copied? In normal cells, so wild-type cells, it cannot be copied. But then we ask, can we make it be copied? And what we did is we took away an opposing activity that removes that mark, and when we take it away, now we see that it can be copied. Not only is it copied from one cell to two daughter cells, we can see it being copied for many cell divisions, and we can also see it go through the process of meiosis, it's kind hey. of yeast,
1: yeast babies. <laughs> yes,
3: yeast babies.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds to me like there's, there's a lot of molecules that are putting these marks on, taking them off. There's this balance between uh, the copying and the removing and all these kind of things. It feels like a, a very complicated field. Where do you think the really big questions are, the things that really need to be sorted out?
3: Well, so one of the things that people are trying to figure out is whether these modifications are instructive in the sense in responding to environmental differences or pressures. For example, in a plant, temperature or um, geographical location. In us, in people, you could say whether you've got a high-fat diet or a low-fat diet, and that's a very active and hot area at the moment where people are trying to see is there an underlying contribution of these type of events to... For example, there's lots of studies that show that diet can influence traits in uh, children, uh, but then the contra- then the question becomes is that just because they were developing in the womb of a mother who had a bad diet or were smoking too much or whatever so environmental effects so the real test is whether it can be transmitted via the father through his sperm because of his bad um, habits and uh, What we found at this meeting actually is that there seems to be some interesting things happening in that area and I think that's a big hot topic for the future.
1: What's it like to be part of this now?
3: It's exciting and there's various controversies that need to be sorted out but that just adds to the scientists are naturally questioning uh, both in terms of asking how something works but also questioning whether uh, the way we think things work is actually the way they do work and we're all the, t- all the time tearing down the models that we create and that makes it exciting because we're, um, we're still trying to figure out things out. Um, it hasn't gone stale. Uh, there's a lot of things to find out yet.
1: That was Robin Olsha from the University of Edinburgh. More than 30 genes are now known to be involved in obesity and, intriguingly, most of them seem to be active in the brain, controlling eating behaviour and hormones. Researchers at Imperial College in London, led by Alex Blakemore, have used DNA sequencing technology to pin down the cause of one young woman's severe obesity to a faulty version of a gene called carboxypeptidase E, or CPE, publishing their findings in the journal PLOS1.
4: The earliest studies of genes causing human obesity followed on from looking at mouse models Of obesity so you had certain strains of mice that just hanging around in the in their cage with the other mice had a a tendency to eat very much more than the others and became very very fat now those mice weren't doing that because they were you know mice with a weak personality or a rubbish life they were just mice along with the other mice and and so by looking at those mice we we found a way into understanding what controls eating behavior and the first mouse that was investigated in that way was called the obese mouse. And that was um, that was, uh, began to be understood in about the early 1990s. But since 1974, there's been another mouse that became obese, which is known as the fat mouse. And that mouse had a defect in a gene that processes the hormones that control appetite and the, the regulators in the brain that control appetite. But there had never been a human person found with a problem with that gene.
1: Until now.
4: Until now. This is the first case of, it's called carboxypeptidase E deficiency found in humans, although we've had the mouse models for some time. And the mouse has eating behavior problems, so it becomes very obese. It has obesity, it has fertility problems, and it has memory problems. And the, the woman that we found... This is a young woman of 20 years of age who has a problem with the the same gene. She also has that same constellation of features. So she has severe obesity since she was a child. So at the age of of 20, she weighs twice what her recommended maximum recommended weight would be. She has reproductive uh, issues from intellectual disability and hasn't been able to learn to read despite schooling. She also has type 2 diabetes.
1: And how did you actually find out that this woman had this faulty gene?
4: She was referred to us by the consultant endocrinologist, Tony Goldstone, who was looking after her. And so we included this family in a sequencing study, looking at the sequence of their genes. And we first looked for problems with some of the already known obesity genes, but we drew a blank there. So then we started to look at other genes that had been implicated in obesity but not found in humans. And big among those was the fat mouse. So we looked at that gene and we were surprised to see that this young woman had two broken copies of the gene so she couldn't make carboxypeptidase E at all.
1: Given that you found this one woman, this one family where it seems to be this gene fault, do you think that there may be other people out there with this faulty gene? Do you think that it might lie at the heart of many cases of severe obesity?
4: It's very difficult to tell right now. While we were writing the paper about this, we, we saw that in a, a, an online database of genome sequences from around the world, two other people have been seen, who carry this exactly the same mutation. So it could be that it's more common than we anticipate, but it's been missed.
1: So is it fair to say that obesity is really in the genes, but then what can we do about it?
4: I think we have to stop thinking of obesity as a single disorder. Everybody is obese for a different reason. and for some people, it might be almost totally environmental, and for others, it's almost totally genetic. And one of the useful things we can do is try to find ways of seeing which is which. Looking at people to say, okay, is this a genetic condition for you? Or is it an environmental condition for you? Because the, the way we, we manage people might be different depending on the different causes.
1: So it's not as simple as saying, oh, it's just all in my genes. There's nothing I can do. Pass me the cake.
4: Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's, that's a very funny idea that people have got, that because... You might tell somebody that they've got a genetic condition, then they won't be motivated to do something about it. In our experience, the opposite might be true. It's very, very helpful for people to have a diagnosis and to be told, you have an actual disorder which we can describe. It's not your fault, it's not a character flaw, but it is a battle you're going to have to fight for the rest of your life. And in our experience, it doesn't make people throw in the towel. It gives them renewed vigor because what really sucks people's energy is the, se- the sense of guilt and shame about their obesity and the feeling that there's nothing they can do about it because of that. So to say something's genetic doesn't mean it's cast in stone or that you shouldn't fight against it. It just lets you know that you're likely to have a harder fight than the, the general person in the street.
1: That was Alex Blakemore from Imperial College. Every human on the planet is distantly related in some way, but people who live in the same geographical area tend to be more genetically similar than those living a long distance apart. Now, scientists have discovered that people who inherit the same versions of certain genes from mum and dad are likely to be shorter and do less well at school than those who get different versions from each parent. To find out more, I spoke to University of Edinburgh researcher Peter Joshi, one of the hundreds who contributed to the study.
0: We inherit one copy of each gene from our mother and one copy of each gene from our father. And sometimes we inherit the same copy from both parents. And what we look at is, in the context of the the genome, relative short stretches, but one and a half million letters at a time and see whether or not those one and a half million letters have been inherited the same from your mother and your father. And somebody in that situation doesn't have genetic diversity in that part of the genome. And vice versa, somebody that has inherited different genetics over those one and a half million letters is genetically diverse.
1: And we're just talking not necessarily about really bad gene faults. We're just talking about, you know, sometimes the variation that makes us unique and different.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. So the traits that I study are are what geneticists call complex traits. And they're exactly about what makes us all unique and different and a little bit different from each other. And what we see is that there's lots and lots of genes that have small effects and it's the combined effect of those and the environment that all make us individual people.
1: Tell me about the study. Who were you looking at? What were you actually analysing?
0: What we're doing is using modern genomic techniques to measure genetic diversity. And the way that we're doing that is that we're uh, using 350,000 people in total um, to make sure that the study is very robust. We used a hundred different populations across the world with all of that information and then collating it centrally in Edinburgh. We basically looked had measured the genetic diversity of each of those individuals.
1: So you've got hundreds of thousands of people from populations across the world. How are you analysing their genomes? What are you looking at?
0: What we do is we look at the genetic diversity of individual people within that population and compare them with other people within the population. And at the same time, look at their cognitive ability, height or blood pressure. And then within that population, see whether or not there's an association between genetic diversity and, say, educational attainment. And having done that, we then combine all the results of the different studies to see whether or not the effect is robust and reliable across lots of populations.
1: So when you started looking at the levels of diversity about whether people have two copies of gene or, or two different copies of a gene, what did you start to find?
0: Well, what, what we're doing is we're looking at the whole of the genetic code of each individual and we're scanning along that genetic code and checking what proportion of that genetic code is identical from the mother and the father. And what we typically find is that about 0.1% of the genetic code is uh, inherited identical from the mother and the father. But that number varies from individual to individual. With some people it might be none at all, and in some other people it might be three or four times that. And what we find is that if you've inherited two or three, three or four times the norm in terms of lack of diversity, That reduces educational attainment, cognitive ability, and height.
1: So people who've got more similar genes from their parents, they don't do as well at school and they're shorter?
0: Yes, but it's also important to recognise that these effects are small. But on an individual level, it, it wouldn't be measurable. That's why we needed 350,000 people to sort of robustly demonstrate that it, was, that it was a real effect.
1: So that's height and a broad measure of intelligence. But what about something like your risk of illness? Because we know that the risk of diseases is also encoded in our genes.
0: It has been known for a long time that sort of rare particularly strongly genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis are subject to this effect but what we hadn't shown was that these more complicated traits like educational attainment which has got a lot of environmental factors in it as well obviously like height showed these effects and in fact what we found for the risk of heart disease that we found no evidence in fact that genetic diversity affected your risk of heart disease the mechanism that we think might be involved is that there there will be things associated with development that might underpin growth and therefore your height and so it's not height itself in a way that is being controlled in this way but it's a sort of underlying biological systems and two bad copies might affect height in that way uh, and cognitive ability and if that happens if these traits are favored by evolution then we see this overall effect Whereas for traits that are not subject to evolutionary pressures, we don't see that in quite the same way. It's plausible that heart disease hasn't been under the amount of selection pressure from evolution as you might first think, simply because people tend to get heart disease after they've had their families, and it's reproductive success that counts in Darwinian evolution.
1: Peter Joshi from the University of Edinburgh, and that study was published in the journal Nature this week. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out about our mythical gene of the month, but now it's time to take a look at some of the most interesting molecular players in the world of epigenetics, small RNAs. Many of the talks at the symposium focused on RNA. It's a kind of molecular cousin of DNA, and it's made when DNA is read or transcribed. Researchers are now finding more and more roles for these little fragments in controlling how genes are turned on or off, and their effects may potentially even travel across generations. To get the lowdown, I caught up with Rob Martinson from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York.
2: So small RNAs were discovered in uh, in probably the late 90s, but they turn out to be everywhere pretty much. So we work on looking at these short RNA sequences that regulate, specifically the ones that regulate transposable elements, repetitive junk DNA, things that were thought not to be important for a long time, but actually we think are hugely important parts of genomes that control epigenetic inheritance.
1: That's a big word. (laughs) Well, what do you mean by epigenetic inheritance? How would you describe that?
2: Usually we think of inheritance as being uh, the inheritance of changes to our DNA sequence, to our genome sequence. Um, But epigenetic inheritance are modifications of that sequence that can be reversed or changed uh, And are not uh, fixed in the same way that that DNA sequence changes are, but they can be just as important And uh, importantly you have to think about how they could be guided To specific DNA sequences that they would modify in some way uh, that would allow that to be inherited And so we think that small RNAs are very important in how that uh, inheritance happens.
1: So this is basically how our how our cells, or how any organism cells, manage to kind of be a bit more responsive, or respond to the the changes in the environment around them, and have different types of cells.
2: Yeah, that's right. And importantly, uh, how they control their transposable elements, uh, which can occur over generations. Actually, first shown by Barbara McClintock years ago who described something called cycling where transposons would go on and off over not just you know a few cell divisions but over actual generations like multiple generations.
1: So tell me a little bit more about these small RNAs Uh, what do they look like how are they made and and what do we think they're doing?
2: So the small RNAs are short uh, nucleotide sequences about 20 to 30 nucleotides long.
1: That's kind of letters of RNA.
2: Right, letters of RNA that correspond very closely to the letters of DNA, and that's how they can recognise particular genes or transposons in the genome. They're actually almost the perfect length to do that within a genome of the size of the human genome or or of the maize genome. What they seem to do is they bind specific proteins called argonaut proteins. Uh, There are many, many different argonaut proteins that bind the small RNA and allow them to match a corresponding sequence in a target RNA. The target RNA, in many cases, gets cleaved by the argonaut protein, which is actually an enzyme that can break RNA.
1: So it basically chops it all up and gets rid of it?
2: More or less. It actually does more than that, because it seems to, that that process of chopping it up and getting rid of it also guides, uh, targets other enzymes that modify either the DNA, uh, by DNA methylation, all the proteins that, that DNA surrounds, the histones, uh, chromatin we call the sort of ensemble of all of that, uh, they, these also get modified in response to that processing of RNA. It's one of the things we work on. We still haven't exactly figured out how that happens, but a lot of work has been done especially in plants and, uh, and in fish and yeast.
1: I find this whole process really fascinating. That You have these tiny little fragments of RNA. Uh, they seek out things that they match, and then almost like the magic happens, this is how genes can get switched off, can get silenced. What do we know about how important this is in, in regular life for cells or for plants? We know that it is maybe important for shutting off these jumping genes, these transposons, but what do these small RNAs do in, in kind of regular, regular biochemistry? <laughs>
2: They do a lot. They also target genes, and uh, and when they target a gene, of course, they can turn the gene on and off, and so it's a very powerful control mechanism, both in normal uh, development uh, in humans, in, in plants, also in animals, and importantly in cancer and, and a lot of diseases. Some of these small RNAs are very, very important and, uh, and prevalent in, uh, in regulating genes in that way. They can also influence everything in plant development. In, in a, for example, one of my favorites is. Uh, Plants uh, have uh, a juvenile and an adult phase, just as, you know, you think of a teenager and an adult. A know. teenage plant. <laughs> <laughs> and this uh, this difference is actually completely controlled by small RNAs. There's, a, there's, there's one that's uh, specific to the juvenile phase and one specific to the adult, and they regulate each other, and it's a fantastic story.
1: Given how widespread these tiny little RNAs seem to be and how people are finding them in more and more organisms and doing more and more things, is it safe to say that they're pretty much involved in everything when it comes to controlling genes. Is there anything they can't do? (laughs) Uh,
2: That's actually not far off the case. Literally half the transposons in the the model plant we like to use, Arabidopsis, uh, are targeted in this way. You know, something in the order of 500 genes. Uh, In humans, estimates vary, but certainly thousands and thousands of genes are regulated by small RNAs. It could be that every gene is regulated by a small RNA. I, I, that's... We just haven't found it yet. <laughs> yeah, It's <that's right. laughs> <They're> so small. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> Where next do you think for this field, lots and lots of people are identifying these small RNAs, trying to figure out how they work, how they regulate genes, how they control them. Where do you think things are going?
2: There's a lot of interest in uh, connecting the epigenetics, that's, that's the heritable things that happen to DNA, to the small RNAs, and that field has been really exploding in the last few years, and I think in the next few years it will it will come to a conclusion, which will be very exciting. Uh, I think inheritance of the small RNAs themselves, or at least of their effects, in plants it's probably more well established that this could happen, but in humans people are beginning to look into that.
1: So that's from generation to generation rather yes. than just as cells divide?
2: That's right, that's right. So, I mean, there are some people who are really beginning to say that maybe, you know, germ cells, sperms and eggs actually contain a lot. They contain a huge amount of RNA. And it could be that this is actually transmitted in some way. There's also new types of small RNAs, so they're continually being discovered. One of my personal interests is is recently uh, genome editing has been shown to be controlled by uh, a type of non-coding RNA that's found in bacteria and it works brilliantly well in, uh, in, in our cells as well and I'm wondering if the mechanism might be somehow related and that's going to be a fun, fun area because uh, we know recently that small RNAs are involved in DNA repair and uh, I think that's going to be a very important area as well.
1: Given how important these small RNAs seem to be and uh, how easy it is maybe to make them and to manipulate them are there any therapeutic implications, you know, maybe we could develop medicines or ways of, of gene therapy using these things?
2: Uh, there's a lot of interest in that. Um, several startup companies have done very well um, on, on, that, on that specific idea. Using the RNA exactly as it is, it probably needs a lot some modifications to make it uh, useful as a drug, uh, but it's definitely, it's definitely a big area. And in plants, um, some, some uh, seed companies are thinking of, you know, spraying plants with small RNA is something that I was very skeptical about, but apparently it works. And uh, I think that's going to be a big area, absolutely.
1: That was Rob Martinson from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And finally, it's time for our mythical Gene of the month, and this time it's Ariadne. The daughter of King Minos of Crete, the ancient Greek story goes that Ariadne fell in love with Theseus, who was aiming to kill the terrible bull-headed minotaur hiding in its Cretan labyrinth. Ariadne sneakily gave Theseus a sword to stab the beast and a ball of string to help him find his way back out again. Away from ancient Greece, the Ariadne gene was first discovered in fruit flies, and it's involved in helping nerve cell axons, those are the long wires of our nervous system, to find their targets, just like that helpful ball of string. Flies with a faulty version of Ariadne don't usually survive, and those that do have problems with their nerves and muscles. There are also versions of Ariadne in mammals, such as mice and humans, and there are hints that it might be involved in the development of the neurodegenerative disease Parkinson's. That's all for now. I'll be back next month taking a look at the mysteries of DNA methylation with more reports from the Waddington Symposium on Epigenetics. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.